BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in this week for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're going to solve inflation and supply chain issues in just 30 minutes. Or at least that's what it says on my script. 30 short minutes. Okay, we're not going to solve them. But we are going to dig into why we are in this situation with a repeat guest. Lenny Mendoza is Governor Gavin Newsom's former chief economic and business advisor. He is a longtime leader in the business community and has a resume honestly like a mile long. I can't get to all of it. But one of my favorite titles, he is founder and owner of the Half Moon Bay Brewery. Live taping soon to come. we got to make that happen. (laughs) Uh, Mendoza will join us in a few minutes to talk about what is driving inflation and kind of the politics in in California, D.C. But first, Marisa, big news this week from one of California's leading congresswoman, Jackie Spear of the Bay Area, who announced she's not going to run for another term uh, in 2022 uh, after decades of of public service here at the local level, in the state legislature and in Congress. Yeah. And I mean, I think you can't start this conversation without acknowledging how her sort of public service began, which was working for Leo McCarty, the um, congressman, and being at Jonestown surviving that horrific attack herself. I think she still has like shrapnel in her leg. Uh, from being shot um, and then came back and just I mean, it, 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 you know, I think one of those like regardless of politics, you just have to really acknowledge how much how many paths she's tr- blazed. I mean, she was the first woman to ever give birth as she was a sitting state legislator. Um, she, I mean, went through just personal tragedy um, and then came out to be this really leading voice in Congress on women's rights, on uh, fighting sexual assault in the military, um, taking on former President Donald Trump. Um I don't know. There's so much to say about her. Yeah. yeah. No, someone who I think took, you know, was determined not to let that event in Guyana kind of define her career. Right. It was Leo Ryan. She worked for him for years. He was killed. She went without medical attention for like 22 hours, made it out. And and folks I talked to this week a lot around her legacy on gun violence prevention. Right. And she really used her story and was able to bring that in, you know, California in the 80s when they were debating whether to put in place an assault weapons ban. Spear tells this story, and I talked about it this week with Mike Thompson, who's now a congressman, but back then was her chief of staff in the legislature. 
people would, you know, get up on the floor and say, the assemblywoman from San Mateo, has she ever even fired an assault weapons? And she would say, have you ever been shot by one? You know, like it became a really effective, you know, she was able to be an effective advocate in this space. She talked openly about her abortion. I mean, just things that I think, to some extent, we might take for granted given the like sort of political climate and the fact that people's lives are so much more open than they might have been before. But she's always really just sort of risen to the challenge of like bringing the personal into the politics and understanding the power of that connection, to your point, to maybe convince people, but also for her own sort of strength. I mean, she talks about the fact that she was able to take on some of these fights because of the fact that she had survived that terrible assault and, you know, whether it was fighting with corrections officers in Sacramento or with military brass in D.C. Um, It'll be fascinating to see if she does something next. Right. And, you know, we were talking, we definitely have to, you know, we were talking about doing some repeat episodes through the holidays. We got to bring back that interview you and Scott did with her. Such a good conversation. Yes. Yeah. So definitely uh, stay tuned. But I think there are open questions. I mean, she says she wants to spend time with her husband, her her daughter. She doesn't want to commute anymore, but she's definitely left open, it seems, the door to potentially more public service, whatever that looks like. And as we know, California is often political musical chairs. So totally. And I think there will be. Possibly more retirements to come, right? Democrats are looking at, you know, tough polling heading into 2022. There's, you know, a lot of uh, new districts are going to be formed. So I think this could could just be the first of many we see retirements of our uh, congressional delegation. Quickly, before we go to break, we want to hit on this uh, news on California state budget that came out this week from the Legislative Analyst Office. Basically saying, once again, Governor Gavin Newsom and the legislature will be flush with cash in the new year with with options to spend it. Yeah. And um, loyal Kikuti listeners might not have been surprised by this news because we actually uh, reported this a few weeks ago when the governor kind of hinted at these blockbuster numbers yet again. Um, But, Guy, this does set up. I mean, we don't have to get totally into the weeds here, but an interesting debate for the Democratic-led legislature because there's this arcane kind of law called the GAN limit that says if revenues are above a certain percent, they have to kind of be spent in certain ways. One option would be a rebate to taxpayers, although with the inflation conversation we're about to have, maybe that's not the best idea. Um, You know, another would be upping school spending. And we know that districts are actually really worried about what's to come because of the declining enrollment and all the challenges that have been brought on by the pandemic. Um, And so I think that, like, it's going to be um, another year of interesting fights on like how to spend too much money, which can honestly be as politically sort of challenging as how to cut spending in years of deficit. Absolutely. And another option that Governor Gavin Newsom floated this week, he was at the ports in Southern California. He said maybe one way to spend this perhaps is on infrastructure, right? That's a way to kind of get around the GAN limit. You can put that money into one-time infrastructure spending. That could be something that's top of mind for lawmakers dealing with these supply chain issues. Right. I mean, we have what 40 percent of the nation's goods go through the Long Beach and Los Angeles port. So it's not like this is just a, a small part of that supply chain conversation. All right. We are going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be joined by Lenny Mendoza. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with guest host Guy Marzarati. And today on The Breakdown, we are thrilled to welcome Lenny Mendonca. He was Governor Gavin Newsom's chief chief economic advisor and head of the High Speed Rail Authority until he stepped down at the beginning of the pandemic last year. Lenny, welcome back to The Breakdown. Lenny. Hey, Marisa and Guy. It's great to be back. You were our last in-person guest before the world shut down. So it's lovely to see you, although I wish it was not through a computer screen. Yes, great to see you too. I do remember that. And I remember you taking a call in the middle of it that your daughter had to be picked up from school because they were closing the schools. So, Oh, geez. Don't take me back there again. Please, please, please. Well, we are now calling you back on because we're at like another phase of this ongoing, you know, basically, well, we'll talk about it. Is this because of the pandemic? But we're seeing so many headlines right now about inflation, rising prices, supply chain issues. I want to start out really simple here. What's inflation like or why is inflation happened traditionally? What what are the sort of traditional economic markers that we see that lead to prices rising so quickly? Well, at its most basic level, all prices are a function of supply and demand. When there's more demand than supply, prices increase to equalize that. Inflation is the overall measure in the economy of how fast are prices rising. Um, this time, it is not just the traditional macroeconomic lens of where we are in a recovery that is uh, substantial demand and maybe uh, full employment that would cause prices to increase. But that's the debate that's being had right now is how much of that is that traditional part of the economic recovery versus how much of it is is still a function of, of COVID. And how are you weighing these different factors? You know, consumers, insatiable demands, the actions of the Biden administration, the actions of companies, the Federal Reserve, like how are you putting all those pieces together in this? Well, I'd say to be straightforward, there still is a lot of uncertainty. So anyone who gives you a point view about what's causing this is overstating their confidence. Um, I I think there is, however, um, unequivocally, we are in a healthy recovery. Just today, the federal government announced that we're back to GDP levels that and personal income levels that were higher than they were at the beginning of COVID. So at the aggregate level, we are in a good recovery. Um, having said that, we are still uh, have fewer people employed. There are a few fewer people in the workforce, and there are still numbers of, of uh, opportunities to wrestle through the challenges that have come with this rapid decline and rapid increase that is caused by COVID. And finally, there's obviously still the question around 
is COVID really beat back or not? Will we have more surges? And that's not just a U.S. issue. It's a global issue as it relates to some of these inflation questions. Well, right. I mean, before we get into kind of some of these buckets, whether it's the stimulus plan, just what happened during COVID with the shutdowns, the Fed, how private companies responded. Can you talk about that being this being a global problem? Because I think that is sort of part of what makes this so challenging is you can't necessarily draw a through line between, say, one government policy. I mean, this is this, I guess one way to say it is this feels different than what happened in the 1970s, correct? No, no question. Um, I mean, there was obviously not COVID in the 1970s. <laughs> we can look back to 1918 for a pandemic's effect on the economy. But number one, we didn't have a integrated global economy and we didn't have a Federal Reserve Act in the way it does. So this is a combination of things that are unique. Um, the U.S. is obviously the biggest economy. California is the biggest economy within that country. But we are really globally connected. And particularly when it comes to goods, where you've seen a lot of the increase in prices, those are definitely globally oriented, whether it's energy, which that is similar to the 70s around some of the elements of OPEC's actions and and uh, increases in gas prices, um, but it's other goods that are you know autos, semiconductors. Um, you know we're in the holiday season, so there's a big demand normally for goods. Um, we had uh, dramatic declines in production and distribution in the beginning of the down end of of the uh, pandemic because of that was the way to deal with the health issues, not just here but around the world. And you can't just ramp everything down and ramp it back up that quickly in a lot of places, mm -hmm. particularly in, you know, international shipping lines. It can take three or four or six months to go from some place to another. And then in other parts of the world, we're not through this yet. I mean, there are, you know, a port shuts down in, in Vietnam for two weeks. That's part of the supply chain that's integral to when, how we get products on the shelves for Christmas. You know, that affects things. So in, in some ways, it seems like this is built on this recent, you know, strategy that companies have had to have that kind of just-in-time philosophy, right? They're, they, they're strategizing around stocking goods and production wasn't really maybe lined up for, for the way the economy exists post-pandemic? Yes, I think that it was a little bit of this conversation before the pandemic about resiliency and making sure that your supply chain was resilient. But at that time, it was much more talking about... Um, exchange rates and geopolitical volatility. People worried about what happens, movements of the dollar or Chinese uh, concerns. And people were thinking about diversifying where they got supplies, but they were still largely operating on just in time. And Explain what that, that is real quick. Uh, that you don't have excess inventory sitting around that you, uh, when something sells, then you've got it immediately available to, to, to uh, distribute. You don't build up a big warehouse someplace let alone a big factory that's that's running and holding stuff there. Right. And so, but what happened when we have these shocks like this, you recognize that resiliency matters in addition to cost. And so companies are starting to adjust, but you can't do it overnight. And we're still working through what was in the traditional history of economics, like it's a very quick downturn and a very quick recovery. Well, and quickly before we get to some of these other areas, it's not just goods moving around, right? This was also we hear about the, the you know, used cars have gone up so much. Rental co car companies sold all their stock. I mean, oil companies, you know, declining production. I mean, did corporate America or is that even did corporate worldwide <laughs> leaders sort of, I don't know, like 
make plan the for wrong, a worse plan, yeah, yeah plan like for make a worse the wrong recession. calculation. No, I well, first of all, it wasn't obvious the last time we were talking that we were going to end up any quick recovery. So they were dealing with the same kind of uncertainty then. But it was both consumer behavior and business behavior that affects this. So we all went into um, our home, spent a lot more time there, spent more money on goods, on, on uh, things that were not um, not doing services. We weren't going out to eat. We weren't going to the movies. We weren't traveling. And that income all shifted into things that people bought new cars or they wanted to buy new cars. They wanted to buy video games. They, Netflix was a lot more. Um, and now that's still happening. People had money to spend because of a in my view, largely appropriate and substantial federal government fiscal support. So they had money in their pockets. Um, but we're now starting to see some of that move to services again as travel reopens and people are able to go out to, to theaters or to sporting events. Um, but we haven't got the supply chains and everything else adjusted yet, that, which is why my view, I don't think this is a fundamental macroeconomic imbalance of inflation that's going to be long lasting. I think this is is in large part a function of the shifting economy as we work through the pandemic. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Guy Marzarati here with Marisa Lagos, and we're talking with Lenny Mendonca, longtime business leader and former top economic advisor to Governor Gavin Newsom. And Lenny, I want to ask you about how all of this is affecting, you know, perceptions of the economy by, you know, Californians, U.S. residents. At the same time as we're talking about all this inflation, wages are up, jobs are up. The stock market is doing well. Stimulus checks are still arriving for people. But it seems like inflation is the dominating concern, at least in, you know, recent public polling. What do you make of that? Well, I I think uh, uh, many indicators, as you you mentioned, the economy is doing very well. Um, And the stock market is one of the better indicators of forward looking views about what's going to happen. And so businesses are thinking that there's going to be continued growth. The actual uh, market-based expectation for inflation going out that you can measure by things like treasury index-based, inflation index-based bonds are not that high. People are not expecting a dramatic surge, but individuals, um, it varies on um, what their personal situation is. So wealthy people and people with stock market um, assets did pretty well. And if you own your home, you probably did pretty well too. And a lot of others had a lot of challenges and still have challenges. Um, and then you throw on top of that feeling like when I go to the gas pump, um, my amount of cost to fill my tank is up dramatically. They see that directly. And so you've got a little bit of uh, two-sided economy again, that some of those inequality and differences are only exacerbated by by the uh, the pandemic and the economic response to it. But on two-sided response, is this also not just a reflection of our polarized political system. I mean, if you look at polling, Republicans a year ago were very optimistic when Trump was still in office. Democrats were pessimistic. That has flipped, even though by most indications, you know, things haven't changed that dramatically, at least yet. And as Guy just pointed out, a lot of the other economic markers are there. So, I mean, are we just in a situation where, like, it's you're only going to view the economy through the prism of who's in charge? Um, that's part of it. There are obviously political dimensions to how people view things, but PPIC just came out with some polling this week around how Californians view the economy. And it's as, it's, it's as much driven by your economic standing as your political leanings. 
And I think it's, you know, it's a reasonable statement. There are still uncertainties. If you're in a job where you're not sure what your hours are going to be or whether you're going to be back at work or whether you're going to get laid off or what your outlook is, there there is uncertainty. And so I I think we are, you know, we're we're in that period of slightly uncertain, unstable economy that um, affects different people differently. Is it too soon to judge whether the Biden administration kind of going big on stimulus early in this term was a mistake? Is it too soon to make that analysis? It's uh, it's too early to make that completely. But if anything, the indications are it was absolutely essential because in norm in most recessions, we would have had much more pain by, borne by the people who could least afford it. And the direct stimulus checks in particular, the money that went directly into the hands of people who needed it was spent or saved or paid down debt. So it actually turns out the consumer's balance sheets are in much better shape than they would normally be in this point in a, in a recovery. And that bodes well going forward. In addition, you can't just say um, at, we're at a point in the cycle where it looks like there's a little bit of inflation, say you overdid it. Um, what's the counterfactual? If we didn't do it, we would have had right, right. You know, massive unemployment and and uh, people losing their homes. Which gets so. back to the politics of this, right? Because Trump did stimulus, not as big as I mean, it, it does feel like we're sort of in this. Yeah. Um, Guy, you want to? Well, I do want to pick up on this, this, you know, political threat, right? Because Democrats are now considering, you know, more economic recovery legislation. In fact, you know, we're recording this Thursday afternoon. By the time you hear this, this evening, they might have passed uh, in the House the Build Back Better plan. And I'm wondering, Lenny, how you're thinking about that piece and the kind of long-term uh, economic recovery. Because for as much as we're talking about this short-term stuff, the, the long-term trends of loss of worker power, sluggish economic growth, those have been happening for years uh, before this current discussion we're having. Is there a risk that politicians are going to learn the wrong lesson in, in reacting to this particular moment of an overheated economy? Uh, yes, there is a risk of that. I, I think the um, history will show and it will show relatively soon that the stimulus package were very appropriately done and the Federal Reserve's response was absolutely necessary. We'll also show that, as it always the case, that investment in infrastructure properly deployed is a good investment. So that package will be a good idea. I sincerely hope that we get l- most of the portions of the Build Back Better proposal done. Those are essential to deal with the underlying issues that were there before and are going to be there when we get through this. Yeah. So investments to ensure that people have childcare, that everyone has an opportunity for high quality preschool, that we're actually providing paid family leave. Those things are all not just fairness issues. They're actually help enable more people to enter the workforce that we need right now. We actually need people to go back to work. But that is a great segue to bringing this a little closer to home and thinking about both, you know, the the programs that Biden wants Congress to pass in this Build Back Better budget reconciliation, but also some of the initiatives that you helped spearhead and, and, and advise on here. I mean, let's talk about this, because a lot of conservatives will say, no, actually, increased unemployment benefits cause people to leave the workforce and stay home and just cash those checks. Expanded child care might help child poverty, but it'll also, you know, make some parents decide to leave the workforce. Like, take that argument on, Lenny. Why is that not, not where you stand, well, the right the right argument? Well, well, first of all, we should argue it based on the facts, not individual opinions. And there's actually very little evidence to no evidence that the increase and extension of unemployment benefits had any substantial impact on unemployment or employment. 
what it did is provide money to people who needed it. And they, they came back to work when they could. As I said, right now, the main reason people are not going back to work isn't job opportunities. There's actually more job openings than people looking for work. It's a little bit of mismatch of what their, their skills are relative to the jobs, but it really is related to things that were there before that got exacerbated by the pandemic. If, you, if it costs more to get childcare than you're going to make in your job, you're not going to go to work. If you have to care for your, your elders or you have responsibilities at home and you have an uncertain job when you happen to come to work, you're not going to go to work. And so the U.S. spends less than $1,000 from the federal government on pre-K support for parents. The average in the OECD is over $10,000. Something's wrong with the United States. We need to get much more in line with that kind of support. And it will really help. If we're going to have a growing economy, we're going to have to have more people going to work and we have to enable them to do that, which is why those elements are important. And as part of what we were trying to do by showing how it could be done on a state level, but to really scale it and make it sustainable, it's got to be federal. Do you think, I mean, some people just like had a little break from their jobs because they had to, they got laid off. They couldn't go and went, I don't want to do this anymore. Like we're seeing a lot of people just switch careers and retrain, right? Yeah, And that's a good thing. You know, if people are happier in what they're doing or they were stuck in something where they now have an opportunity to have a better quality job, that's good. That's a healthy labor economy. That's what it's supposed to do. Yeah. Researching this, it was interesting to see the data showing that states that cut off unemployment earlier didn't have job gains any different. Yeah. Okay. I want to switch gears for the last few minutes of the show. Um, As we mentioned, we last saw you in March of 2020. And just a few weeks later, you left your high profile job advising the governor. Um. Three months after you left, you authored an op-ed explaining why you left. And it began in part, I'm sharing additional information because I faced a challenge one of every three people in America has, depression and anxiety. Can you just tell us a little bit like how you reached the point of stepping down and 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 talking publicly about such a, a what can be such a private struggle? Sure. So uh First of all, this had n- nothing like this had ever happened to me before. So I didn't know what I was experiencing when I was mm-hmm. going through it. And it happened shortly after I saw you guys last. Yeah. And it was severe and pronounced. And I was just, you know, mentally and physically unable to devote my time to anything other than taking care of myself. And fortunately, I had a caring family, my wife, my kids, and some friends who saw it and had more recognition of it and forced me to get the treatment that I needed. And so it was really, um, I had the privilege of having a job where I could go away. I had great healthcare coverage and I got access to great care right away. All of those are unusual. And so I uh, came through it and I'm actually kind of doing great now. Um, But when I first came through it and was feeling better, my wife and daughters encouraged me to write about it partly for my own catharsis, honestly, but also because I ne- I hadn't told people what happened. And I, you know, once you start telling people, it gets out. And <laughs> we I finally, were wondering, I mean, people were wondering, you were a public figure. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, you know, I, I said from the beginning, I didn't have COVID, but it was, and when I got through it, I felt like if I'm going to be true to myself and um, say that this is something that we should be talking about, I need to model that. And so I wrote that and I've probably written a hundred or more editorials in my life. And that one got an order of magnitude more response than anything I've ever written. 
Right. The response that I mean, I hope you were able to see just the response that that came, you know, out of that overwhelmingly, you know, positive. And I think people are so appreciative that you shared that story. And I'm wondering, you're in touch with business leaders, government leaders, like, how are you talking to them about how they should broach these issues and deal with these issues within their own workplaces and, and workforces? And the most astounding thing in the response that I get was a very large number of people, many of whom I didn't know, said they had a similar experience. And that's the reality. So the fact that people think this doesn't happen is not true. It's happening to everyone. It's happening to people close to everyone. So that's the first thing is be honest about it. But the other element is in some sectors of the economy, this is a very comfortable and common conversation. In the entertainment world, it's part of the creative experience and people talk about it openly. Mm -hmm. In the sports world, particularly more recently enabled by people like like Simone Biles, like Michael Phelps, um, who are talking about it, it's more open. And in fact, it's long been part of the sports conversation that you need to be at the top of your mental game mm. and have a mental coach as well as a physical coach. But in the business world, in the political world, it's still a, a not a conversation. And so what I have been talking to people about and getting, I'm encouraged by this response. I um, mean, COVID makes this even more important is that this is a challenge and it's a challenge that you have responsibility for as, as a leader of an organization and it's in your economic interest to do something about it. And, you know, I tell business leaders, if you don't think this is an issue, pick up your employee support line and call like you're an employee and see what response you get. Hmm. And then when they tell you, sure, we'll, we'll get you some care. It'll be two or three weeks. You're, you understand that's not helpful. Yeah. You know, people need help. They need help now. Are you optimistic that, that this conversation will keep going as the pandemic hopefully recedes? Because I know in our line of work, it felt like there was a lot of those conversations happening at the beginning. But, you know, life's returned largely to normal without necessarily a lot of the the positive emotional kind of interactions that we got pre-pandemic. Um, I my yes, I am optimistic. I would for two reasons. Number one is there are more people um, with public personas who are talking about it. Um, you know, you have the conversation with Lady Gaga, you know what she's about. Um, and then the second ring is from a business standpoint, um, they understand the economic consequences. And so before I get into the personal issues on this topic, I just start with the business case. And so that's what we are. We are so glad you're feeling better. Thank you, Lenny, yes. for coming Thank on. You, we Lenny. really appreciate Thanks it. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy's our producer. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Guy Marzarati. Next week, we will be at home celebrating Thanksgiving, but bringing you part two of Scott and Maurice's conversation with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Don't miss it. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!
Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.